0: Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management.
1: I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together, we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. All right. Welcome back to the Mental Models Podcast. Before we get started, I wanted to mention that we're always interested in questions from audience members. If you'd like to bring up a topic that you'd want to hear us talk about, or maybe address a specific question, go to mentalmodelspodcast.com questions. We look forward to hearing from you.
0: Yeah. Um, today, Dan, I think we're going to talk a little bit about value investing and Benjamin Graham and Warren Buffett and how Buffett progressed from his original learnings from the teachings of Benjamin Graham.
1: Yeah, this is an interesting topic to get into. We're going to do two parts on this value investing one and address it again in a second podcast because it's such a deep topic and everyone is incredibly interested in Warren Buffett, um, how he did what he did. And to understand that, it's helpful to go back to Benjamin Graham to really talk through that methodology, how Graham operated, the context in which he operated, and then what Buffett was able to do over um, his career with uh, that knowledge as uh, things changed in the economy and um, in the types of information available and the type of opportunities available. And then eventually we'll get to the point of modern day investing where we can look at how the landscape has changed from those, those earlier periods and how those methodologies are still appropriate
0: today or where they may not be appropriate. And one thing I'd like to do before we uh, launch into the discussion of Graham and Buffett Is just to frame what value investing uh, is generally. The notion of value investing is that you're purchasing an asset at a discount to its intrinsic value, sufficient enough to provide you with a margin of safety. I'm going to posit that a lot of what's characterized as growth investing can also be characterized as value investing. It's just a distinction in uh, where the cash flows are provided. More traditionally, When people think of value investing, they think of current yield, right? The current value that you can realize based off of the business as it is today. And they tend to think of growth investing as the value uh, that, you know, you're investing for the potential of the business in the future. Uh, I tend to conflate both of them into one because essentially what you're doing is you're purchasing something at a discounted future cash flows of the business. And that could be based off of growth or current value. The key element uh, in distinguishing the two tends to be the level of uncertainty. With that said, and that'll be just important for framing these next couple of podcasts, we're going to talk a little bit about Benjamin Graham and Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett, of course, learned from Benjamin Graham uh, at the Columbia Business School.
1: Didn't Buffett actually go there specifically to work with Graham? That's
0: correct. He read uh, The
1: Intelligent Investor. And we'll put that in the show notes as well. That's a good starting point for this whole conversation, um, The Intelligent Investor.
0: What it was that Graham focused on early on, which was basically the net-net strategy, and that was uh, purchasing stocks at a discount to their uh, networking assets uh, which were assets that you could have a realization of value within a year, less all liabilities, current and long-term liabilities. So basically what you want is a cash equivalent value uh, for the current assets. That you want that cash equivalent value to be worth uh, significantly more than all of those liabilities. And you'd also want to consider off-balance sheet as well as on-balance sheet liabilities. Uh, But the idea was typically you would try to find a dollar worth of assets that you could buy at 65 cents. And that would provide you with an adequate uh, space for both return and a margin of safety uh, where you may be able to discount uncertainty you may have Uh, or the fact that there's some unseen event that may occur that you don't anticipate. Just a margin of safety, that whole notion, that's one of the most important notions from uh, the intelligent investor. That is that when you make an investment, you want to have adequate return, but you also want to discount your evaluation of the asset to make up for the possibility that you could be wrong, right? That you could have misjudged, or that you have events unfold in an undesirable manner.
1: That's kind of some good ground rules. Now, how did uh, Warren Buffett apply these kind of approaches, uh, at least early in his career, and maybe what are some ways that, they, that might have changed over time?
0: So Buffett initially adopted Graham's uh, methodology. He actually went to work for Graham uh, for a couple of years before Graham Newman actually shut down. He engaged in the net-net strategy. They would basically look at companies uh, that were trading at uh, a discount to their receivables, their cash, uh, their inventories. They may apply some discount to the inventories and the receivables to be conservative, uh, but the net of all of the liabilities. And there were a lot of these companies available at the time because it was uh, pretty soon after the recession. Uh, This was in the 1950s, I believe, and uh, the desirability of stocks, it was still fresh in the mind. There were still plenty of people that had lived through through the Great Depression that uh, were really quite familiar with uh, what a harrowing experience that was, and stocks were really not that popular. Brokers, uh, somebody being a stockbroker, was not necessarily a desirable profession because people believed there was a lot of risk associated with it. So you could have these situations where stocks really just didn't have enough demand uh, for them to reflect their intrinsic value, and these net nets were relatively abundant among smaller cap stocks.
1: So some of the impact of Benjamin Graham was to provide a formula, sort of a roadmap to assess that risk.
0: That's right. Well, to, or, or to be able to identify those opportunities, really. Uh, and And if you think about it, it is one of the least degrees of certainty that you could imagine you have a a profitable company that is trading at below essentially its liquidation value and i don't mean that assigning no value to long-term assets like land, property and equipment or real estate assigning all the value just to the essentially cash-like assets you know current assets those assets which can be liquidated within one year and uh if you can find a desirable profit that you can earn out of that, there's just not much risk to the downside. So you have a high degree of certainty. Now, over time, Buffett uh, employed that strategy and had phenomenal returns. It became progressively harder and harder for him to find opportunities as the market did better and better. And then the 1960s, Uh, he actually closed down the Buffett partnership because when he left Graham, he started the Buffett partnership in part because he felt like there were not very many opportunities to be found. Now, at the time, he was still engaged largely in purchasing these net-net opportunities. Eventually, uh, he went and put put all of his money into one last net-net or the most material portion of his money. And some of his partner's Retained their ownership of Berkshire Hathaway. And that's really how Berkshire Hathaway came to be. Itself was a net net. He also developed a relationship with Charlie Munger, who is now the vice chair at uh, Berkshire Hathaway. And uh, they, Munger was an advocate of buying truly great businesses businesses that had a real franchise that allowed them to generate returns in excess of their cost of capital as opposed to the net nets. You know, the Buffett describes the net nets as kind of like being a you know a cigar butt that's laying there in the street. It's it's mostly smoke. There's just not much left, uh, and it's got one left last puff. You pick it up, you puff it. Uh, it's not great. It's not a great experience, but it was free, right? There was no cost associated with it, and that's much of what these net nets were like. They were not good companies in most cases. They destroyed capital, and you'd have to take the position off as soon as you got to uh, the point where they reached their intrinsic value. But the great company is really the first example of Buffett breaking out of this mold and moving more towards Munger's notion of uh, investing in higher quality businesses was Seize Candy. And uh, there, you know, obviously Seize Candy had a brand and it had pricing power, uh, which was, you know, a reflection of that brand, had the mind share of it It's customers and that's pretty much what they did when they bought it and they almost didn't buy it because uh, they felt like it was too expensive And i can't remember exactly the multiple but it was not expensive by today's standards uh and the first thing they did was raise prices but that began buffett moving down the path of buying higher quality companies which we saw later with american express and then again with coca-cola uh and of course geico now ironically geico was a position that Benjamin Graham had in his uh, portfolio. And uh, by many of his own standards, it would not be something that he'd want to purchase uh, because it was way too expensive. But uh, GEICO had its own moat. It had just the structure of its sales force, the fact that they didn't have uh, commissioned sales agents that they relied upon. They went direct to the consumer So they were able to basically offer uh, their insurance product at a lower price uh, and capture more of the economics for themselves. And they were also selling to ex-military, so they always had uh, more reliable customers. Their underwriting standards tended to be uh, more effective, uh, and it was more profitable.
1: It sounds as if... uh he starts out more with the net-net strategy. How much of his success led to these, was it because he, he made a lot of money, he could now focus on these, these really high quality companies and then it sounds like Munger also sort of nudged him in that direction. I guess that's a fundamental change when you talk about Buffett specifically that he's starting to move away from the purely Graham strategy just because he would have had a lot of capital to, to move around and buy some of these more expensive companies? Well, I
0: think it's a a mixture of a few things. One, I think the net-net opportunities were less available as the market became richer. Uh, And then two, uh, the continuous compounder or uh, high-quality franchise business, those enterprises tended to be a little larger. And as he had more capital, his success led to a higher level of assets under management that he had. Uh, he could put more capital work. He was attracted to the greater tax efficiency. So if you have a net net, you don't hold it for the long term. That's a misnomer. Uh, It Basically, it's a blanket notion that you buy stocks for the long term. That only works if they're high quality stocks that are able to get returns in excess of their cost of capital. If you buy a mediocre business, but you just buy it super cheap, uh, then as soon as it reaches its intrinsic value or approaches near its intrinsic value, you want to liquidate the position and find the next one. Of course, that's not tax efficient because what happens is you know, you're buying it low, selling it high, and you're realizing the capital gains uh, taxes you know, once you've, you've had that realization event. But if you buy a great business, theoretically, you could hold it forever, right? And you'd never pay taxes on the appreciation of the business as they're internally able to get returns on their investments that are in excess of their cost.
1: It seems like that in Buffett's case is where he eventually started to move to. Or when you think of, I've often heard him describe um, just uh, compound interest as being one of his big levers for for wealth. And uh, I I guess in, in some ways, it seems like he's migrated away from the Graham version of value investing or, would you still consider all of his practice to be value investing?
0: Well, to back up a little bit to Graham, one of the more important uh, notions that Graham had that Buffett still says is extremely relevant today uh, is the notion of Mr. Market. And uh, Mr. Market's this fictional character who uh, basically you could imagine him as your business partner in every stock that you're invested in. Uh, But if we just think about it in, in one instance, just imagine that your business partner comes in and some days he's feeling really excited and uh, he makes an offer every day to either buy or sell your shares in the business and when he's really excited he'll offer a very high price for the business and then some days he may be kind of mundane and there's no real difference and he'll just kind of offer what you think is a rational price for the business and then some days he'll come in and he'll be extremely upset And dour, and he has this negative outlook on the world, and he'll offer a very low price for your business. Well, the idea that Graham cultivated is that you were supposed to take these erratic mood shifts in the market and use them as your servant. You have a notion of what the value is of the business is that's based off of a rational assessment, and then when the market is quite exuberant, then you sell to the market. You sell to Mr. Market. And then when he's really depressed, then you buy his, his share of the business. When he's really depressed, and he thinks the business has no value. The danger is, is most of us are influenced by Mr. Market. Mr. Market comes in, he's really excited, and uh, then you become excited as well, right? And then you adopt the narrative that he has uh, communicated to you. Or you become dour because he's dour. Now, uh, that is the value investing approach. It's essentially an anti momentum approach. So, when momentum is negative, the value investor tends to be a buyer. And by the way, the sin of value investing is always being too early. And when the market is really excited about something, the value investor tends to be a seller. George Soros was just pretty much the opposite. He would be. Uh, want to be a buyer when the market was going up, uh, and want to be a seller when the market was going down. Now, he could do both. He could play the value investor role. But the point was is that he tended to basically embrace the reflexive nature of the market, which we've talked about before, which is really a momentum-based strategy, uh, which was not a central tenet of Benjamin Graham's notion. So Benjamin Graham's notion was, is that you could have irrational pricing in the market because the market was irrational, uh, and that you could take advantage of that on both sides of the book.
1: Okay. So people um, who are identified as value investors now, would they often use probably other tools such as um, catalysts or momentum investing? Uh, You mentioned that you don't really distinguish between growth investors and um, value investors at the beginning. So that's sort of another aspect to all of this. It's not really one way to do it. People don't follow exactly the the Graham method. And uh, how much variability would you say there is among individuals and how they carry out in their practice?
0: I think probably as much as there are individuals. I mean, everybody has a tendency to have their own style. Um, At SabrePoint, we actually have five different investment strategies that we use, two on the long side and three on the short side. Um, A lot of shops will basically just have two. But uh, I think, you know, to kind of bring this into a clear picture, my notion is the value growth distinction, I think, is one that is made for convenience, and it's more of a heuristic than anything else. When the reality is is that if if you can have certainty associated with the discounted future cash flows of a business, then all investing is value investing, right uh, that assuming that that's the criteria that you're using, the distinction for uh, the more universally uh, distinguishing uh, characteristic between value investing growth investing is uh, the current Yield of the business, what does it currently provide? That would be more value-oriented versus the future yield of the business, which would be more growth-oriented. The idea that you you have growth in sales, growth in earnings, uh, and that's more challenging. But uh, I think for today, we can just say that you know Buffett had this transition from being what was more of a value investor, a deep value investor, uh, to being. Uh, more of what's called a GARP investor, a growth at a reasonable price investor. He'd buy great businesses, great franchises. It's interesting to see, like he has progressed more recently. And part of that is the influence of uh, the two investment professionals that he's brought on to aid him uh, as his, you know, eventually he'll pass away, part of his succession plan. Uh, they, their largest position, I believe now, is Amazon. Uh, they've also bought Apple. So those are not traditionally consistent with uh, the, the Garpy, Coca-Cola, or American Express because of the technology element, which brings more uncertainty into the picture. But I think we'll talk a little bit about more about how things have developed, uh, and that'll lead us well into our next discussion on this topic.
1: Yeah, it's an incredibly deep topic. Um so uh today we've talked about starting with Benjamin Graham, value investing, how it initially could be carried out um at an earlier point in time and then of course the successes of Warren Buffett, how he was able to use those principles and uh then modify it and kind of add his own style. And uh there's many differences now from today's standpoint, most notably perhaps the the speed and quantity of information available to investors. Uh, and really universally available to investors, which would have been different um, very much from being a value investor in the 1950s or 60s. So with that, we'll uh, move toward uh, doing a second episode on value investing. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks, appreciate it. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. Please subscribe. Visit MentalModelsPodcast.com for updates on Dan and George's upcoming book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. Also available on MentalModelsPodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitcher. Please subscribe and thank you for listening.